Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've joined us this morning. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, this article is from The Atlantic, and it's titled, One More Reason to Admire Elephant Trunks. Oh, I guess I admire them. I sure. another reason. Sure. <laughs> well, if you're not already on board with admiring elephant trunks, maybe we can convert you with this article because new research confirms that elephant trunks don't just blow. They can also suck. Didn't, didn't we know that? Yeah, like, that's what Dumbo that. did yeah. with the peanuts. Like, he sucks up the peanuts and then he blows it. I understand it's a cartoon. It's not necessarily real. <laughs> <laughs> but it is based in reality. And finally, we've got true scientific data to really underscore the mechanics in a way that we hadn't before. So the African elephant trunk weighs in at, any guesses? How heavy do you think it is? 100 pounds. Um, they, yeah. Ooh. I'm going to do a, a Price is Right. 101 pounds, Bob. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jennifer got it if we're doing that uh, <laughs> type it. of guessing. It weighs in at well over 200 pounds. Oh, so wow. That's, that's a big old schnoz. And yeah. we all know that they kind of ripple with thousands of individual muscles that help it do so many things from lifting barbells to uprooting trees and even flinging bothersome lions in the air. All of those examples. <gasps> are hyperlinked, so if you have a hankering to see any of those, uh, definitely check out the article. I did not, <laughs> so those remain unclicked on my browser. But <laughs> let's talk about something different, like a tortilla chip. Okay. All right. It, the Atlantic says that a tortilla chip is an embarrassment of engineering. Why? Well, it weighs a fraction of an ounce, and it can measure less than a millimeter thick, and they snap really easily, right? Yeah. I'm sure, mm -hmm. at least as Texans, we understand the salsa guacamole sure. heft. <sighs> yes. <laughs> with so much sadness. But yet, a union between chip and trunk is not as impossible as it may seem. So an engineer at Georgia Tech named Andrew Schultz and his colleagues have caught on camera the absurd imbalance between an elephant trunk and a tortilla chip. And they described it in a paper published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface. They found that the elephant would use its trunk to deftly suction it into its grip without breaking it. Oh. Hmm. Not only that, but when you see the video, it's not just the suction. Elephant trunks basically end in an almost pincher-like finger appendage, right? So mm -hmm. they've got these mm -hmm. kind of like two flaps that can dexterously move and grasp things, but really gently. So, you know, obviously elephants are not encountering a whole lot of tortilla chips in the wild, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it does help illustrate the biomechanical properties of trunks. Mm. So African elephant noses can inhale air at speeds of more than 335 miles per hour. What? Wow. <laughs> elephants are kind of sort of accomplishing a type of air bending. And I love that they dropped this reference in here. <laughs> <laughs> which is a super rare skill among land animals. And their olfactory machinery is so sensitive that they can detect TNT 
better than most bomb-sniffing dogs. Hmm, right? Wow. The organization Elephant Voices documents no fewer than 250 separate trunk-related actions that elephants engage in, from signaling to snorkeling to pinching parents' genitals to get their attention. I can only imagine <laughs> how effective that is. Yeah. <laughs> and then the parent uses the trunk to whack the young ones. <laughs> They're so versatile, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the Georgia Tech team went to investigate Investigate with the help of zookeepers at the Atlanta Zoo and a now 38-year-old African elephant named Kelly. Mm. The researchers filmed her slurping up a slurry of chia seeds mixed into water. And then by tracking the movements of the seeds frame by frame, they were able to visualize how quickly water was entering her nostrils. And what they found for Kelly in her six-foot-long trunk, it could expand to comfortably fit more than 5.5 liters of liquid at once, which is hmm. roughly wow. enough to account for every drop of blood in an average human body. <laughs> oh, that's a nice way to measure me. Yeah. That's right. She sucked I up like that, that volume in about a second and a half. So let's hope we never get rampaging carnivorous <laughs> elephants. Um, or just, you know, a small cut around an elephant because they can just drain you right out of the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If they had a taste for blood, which I hope they don't, at least for um, so the researchers then crunched the numbers to approximate how air, rather than water, would flow into the same structure. And their estimate of 150 meters per second is about 30 times as fast as a typical human sneeze. Wow. <laughs> so when it comes to elephant air expulsion, they suspect it might be a lot faster, though they're not sure by how much. And that would also, they were quick to point out, produce a lot of snot, which may Ugh. be why they didn't fully <laughs> investigate that one. Yeah, snot full of chia seeds at this point. Like. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to know if they could also blow out of their noses because, man, those poor lions. That's all I'm thinking about. Like. You know, it could be a defense mechanism like skunks have. Yeah. Maybe we could train elephants to suck up really gnarly stuff and sploosh it out just to keep other things at bay. Yeah, see, I think we're not being creative enough with the pushing it back out part. Like, you can make those things flamethrowers. Oh, like, no! You know, they don't have to swallow it. They suck in the fuel and then they blow it out and... You yeah, yeah. Man, you really took that to an apocalyptic uh, direction. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. You know, who knows? We may need the help of our elephant brethren sooner than we realize. <laughs> That's right. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from MassiveSci.com, and it's titled, How a Scientist in a Potato Field Founded the Field of Radio Astronomy. Ooh. All right. So the first transatlantic phone call was made in 1927, more than two decades before ships laid the first cables connecting North America and Europe. Unlike domestic telephone operations at the time, which connected people by electrical cable, early transatlantic telecommunications were carried by radio waves, and static frequently interfered with these long-distance calls. And it was this static that led a young radio engineer named Carl Guthjansky on a chase that ended with the advent of a new era of astronomy. Hmm. So the same year of that first radio phone call connecting the U.S. and the U.K., Jansky graduated from the University of Wisconsin, where he studied physics. Bell Telephone Laboratories, a telecommunications company based in New Jersey, wanted to research atmospheric properties and their effect on long-distance radio telephone calls. And they hired Jansky as a radio engineer the following year to figure out where static in their transatlantic radio telecommunications was coming from. During his few years at Bell Labs, Jansky turned an abandoned potato farm into an experimental station to hunt down the source of radio frequency interference. 
And as part of this experiment, he constructed a special antenna more than twice as long as a city bus. Hmm. The antenna rotated on a set of Ford Model T tires, allowing Jansky to not only detect where there was static in the airwaves, but where it was coming from. So using his merry-go-round antenna, Jansky tracked static for several months starting in August 1931. Some of the static he found came from nearby thunderstorms. He traced other static to distant thunderstorms. Yet there was a third source that Jansky could only describe as a strange radio hiss at a wavelength of about 14.6 meters, or a frequency of 20.5 megahertz. Hmm. Jansky tuned into the hiss for more than a year, trying to figure out where it was coming from, which he assumed was somewhere on Earth. This was decades before there were tools like microwave ovens and cell phones, so Jansky suspected any static was from power lines or Earth's atmosphere. But confusingly, the steady hiss sometimes disappeared when Jansky rotated the antenna, and it sometimes appeared when there were no thunderstorms on the horizon. So he started looking to other more far-flung possibilities. His first several months of observation showed that the mysterious hiss followed the direction of the sun. It came from the east at sunrise, south at midday, and west at sunset. But as a couple more months passed, the hiss was no longer perfectly aligned with the sun. Mm. And six months into Jansky's observations, the radio hiss came from directly opposite the sun's location in the sky. Hmm. So at this point, he knew the static was not terrestrial, and he realized it could not come from the center of the solar system either. And while reading this, I was really enjoying just imagining him on the phone with Bell Labs. He's just out there for like over a year on his <laughs> right. potato farm. He's like, I'm going to find it, guys. I, I feel it right. <laughs> any month now. Uh, but so after more than a year of jotting down times and coordinates for the hiss, Jansky poured over star maps in hopes of finding another possible celestial source for the star noise. The maps showed that the hiss's origin aligned with the Sagittarius constellation at the center of the Milky Way. Hmm. Jansky published his results in Nature in 1933, and his accidental discovery of radio waves coming from the galactic center was quickly publicized. The discovery even made the front page of the New York Times on May 5, 1933. But just as quickly as the radio hiss made headlines, the excitement around the discovery unfortunately fizzled out. Since Jansky had solved the mystery of the hiss, Bell Labs assigned him to a different project. And <laughs> they said, as a, you can leave the potato farm, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we guess Bell Labs did not see further radio observations of the galactic center as a wise investment. Mm. Jansky was presumably disappointed with this decision. Even after the project was ended, he continued to think about the star noise and presented additional thoughts on the topic at a conference in 1935. And even professional astronomers weren't drawn to radio observations of outer space right away. While radiation across all different wavelengths were long postulated by the astronomy community, the actual detection and study of such radio waves was unfamiliar, so much so that career astronomers did not want to risk their careers by venturing into a new field of research. Hmm. Instead, amateur astronomers curious about Jansky's discovery took over from where he left off, building new antennas and instruments that looked like satellite dishes in their backyards. Radio astronomy eventually did take hold after World War II, when radar and radio specialists struggled to keep radio static from the sun from scrambling their communications. At this time, astronomers also began looking at other wavelengths, like infrared, as a channel to learn more about the stars. And all of these developments just started from Jansky's tenacity. 
And he got to eat a lot of potatoes while he was figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much just where this article ends. It's kind of a cool survey of the history of radio astronomy. And it's kind of wild to think that this was just an incident of some company that decided, hey, let's figure out how to make our capitalistic tech work better. Right. And then, you know, an entire field of research was uncovered. <laughs> and pretty soon, Jeff Bezos can make all of our spaceflight better because of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or at least his, you know. Right. You guys aren't going? Oh, I, I got my invitation. Sorry. Oh, what? That's uh, awkward. Damn it. I should have tweeted so much. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right, this next article is from smithsonianmag.com, and it's called How 101 Dalmatians Saved Disney. And there have been a number of versions, but they are talking about the original animated movie from 1961. Basically, what it boils down to is that the animated movie used a new technology that saved Disney money at a time when they were really struggling financially, which is kind of hard now to picture a time when Disney wasn't doing well. But apparently it really wasn't in the early 60s. Hmm. So the old way of doing animation was a multi-step process where first the artists would make sketches on regular paper. Then assistants would trace the outlines of those images onto a clear sheet of celluloid or a cell sheet. Then Hmm. a painter would flip the cell sheet over and paint colors within the lines. So when you flipped it back over, the outlines would still be nice and crisp. So you basically have three people touching every image, and Disney films Mm -hmm. generally run between 12 and 24 cells per second. So a full-length motion picture reaches up to a million drawings each, which amounts to a lot of labor costs. Yeah. But in the 1940s, a physicist named Chester Carlson invented a technology he called Xerox. Ah. Yeah. And with a little refinement, they were able to adapt the process to celluloid, which meant they could take a picture of the paper sketch with a Xerox camera and print the image directly onto the cell sheet. So the artists and the painters at either end got to keep their jobs, but the assistants in the middle were not necessary anymore. And this was, you know, sad for the assistants, I'm sure, but it really was Mm. necessary because Disney's previous big release, Sleeping Beauty, had not paid off. It brought in $5 million in ticket sales, or roughly $45 million today, but it had cost them $6 million to make. And in the Ooh. aftermath of that loss, Disney was talking about canceling upcoming projects and even closing its animation studio entirely. What? So think about all the films we would not have gotten oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. if it weren't for Xerox. But Ken Anderson, the art director for 101 Dalmatians, said, wait, 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 don't cancel us. What if we try this new Xerox technology instead to save money and just see how it goes? So they did, and it worked. They got the total budget down to $3.6 million, and the movie ended up grossing $14 million in theaters, which basically saved Disney and made them profitable again. Wow. But one of the drawbacks was that at the time, Xerox was still strictly black and white, or black, really. And if you look at Sleeping Beauty, for example, her blue dress is outlined with a complementary darker blue, while her yellow hair is lined with dark yellow, etc., The art style of 101 Dalmatians, by comparison, comes off as really stark with these thick black outlines on everything. Plus, the ink technology wasn't entirely perfect either. So if you watch the movie, you can see that the outlines are all like a little flaky and jittery, kind of like a bad Xerox copy. Mm. And people noticed at the time, but Disney sort of played it off as this intentional, raw, artistic choice to make Cruella de Vil seem more chaotic and menacing. Mm. But Walt Disney himself actually didn't like it. He was always more concerned with creating the best possible art without any real consideration for budgets. 
Mm-hmm. But most of the other animators preferred it because they felt like there had always been a certain amount of degradation when the less skilled assistants traced their drawings. And now what they had drawn was exactly what went into the movie. Plus, drawing 101 dogs in every scene was tedious and time consuming. But with the Xerox technology, they were able to just draw three or four and then just copy them again and again, kind of staggering their movement so they all looked like they were moving independently. So they also saved money on the dogs. But from that point on, Disney kept using the Xerox technology in all their feature films, all the way up to The Little Mermaid in 1989. Although by then they had figured out how to print with brown ink, so it appeared a little softer. The next film after that was 1991's Beauty and the Beast, which was the first Disney movie to use a computer animation system. Mm. And unfortunately, once computers got involved, Disney began going back and remastering all their old films for re-release which means they cleaned up a lot of the original jitteriness and artifacts Mm. of the Xerox processing. So if you get the Blu-ray or whatever of 101 Dalmatians, you won't see what we're talking about unless you go back and find an old VHS or conveniently you can just follow the YouTube link in the article where someone has uploaded the original. And it was interesting because I watched it with obviously like a modern animation sensibility and I, I liked it. It resonated with me because it's, it's a very common style today. Like the one yeah. thing I kept thinking of was that cartoon Dr. Katz where the edges of all of the lines yes. were really deliberately jittery. And they made it, there was a name for it that I couldn't remember. Is um, that like rotoscoping? Something like that. Yeah, it was, it was like mm-hmm. they would use a particular technique to deliberately make everybody's outlines really, really shaky. Yeah, it was almost like a TV static used for the outlines where it was like mm-hmm. jagged and constantly moving and kind of jittery, right? Yeah. So, you know, maybe on some level you can say 101 Dalmatians inspired that. Uh, for them, it was just a money issue, but <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right, guys. Are you sick of dangerous city traffic, especially now that the world is kind of getting vaccinated and opening up and you're venturing outdoors again? I don't know, man. I live out in the suburbs. Like, it's oh, all <laughs> there's no traffic here. <laughs> all right. Well, for our more, uh, I don't know, metro <laughs> citizens, the conversation has a pretty compelling article by an associate professor of civil engineering at Penn State named Vikash Gaya. And he's proposing that to make city traffic less dangerous, we should be removing left turns altogether. Oh, right. Mm. There's like an urban legend about how UPS did that, isn't there? It's not an urban legend. It's a fact. Oh, well, (laughs) good. Glad to know I'm informed and not just (laughs) making crap up. (laughs) No, you know what's going on. In 2004, UPS wanted to reduce travel times, fuel consumption, and carbon emissions. And so they changed their delivery routes to minimize the left-hand turns that drivers made. And it seems like a pretty modest change, but the results were anything but modest. UPS claims that per year, eliminating left turns, specifically the times drivers sit waiting to cut across traffic, Mm -hmm. saves 10 million gallons of fuel, 20,000 tons of carbon emissions, and allows them to deliver 350,000 additional packages. Wow. And this was just to reduce travel times, fuel consumption, and carbon emissions. Right. Again, it was money. That was all they wanted to do was save their company money. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the progress we make in a capitalist Mm -hmm. society will typically come down to that. But Mm -hmm. because it worked so well for UPS, is this something cities should seek to eliminate too? And this author's research suggests that the answer is a resounding yes. And so Hmm. in a recent paper, they developed a way to determine which intersections should restrict left turns to improve traffic. 
Approximately 40% of all crashes occur at intersections, including 50% of crashes involving serious injuries. And this was a stat that made my eyes pop. Approximately 61% of all crashes that occur at intersections involve a left-hand turn. This Mm. is a known issue. So some cities have actually already started doing this. They haven't eliminated them, but they're limiting left turns to improve safety and traffic flow. San Francisco, Salt Lake City, Birmingham, Alabama, Wilmington, Delaware, Tucson, Arizona, and other places and cities in the U.S. and around the world all limit left turns in some way. But they're typically done at isolated locations to solve specific traffic and safety problems. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, there is a downside. If we were going to eliminate left turns altogether in this perfect world scenario, it would require some vehicles to travel longer distances. For example, you might have to take three consecutive right turns. But research this author published in 2012 using mathematical models and traffic simulations showed that eliminating left turns on grid-like street networks would on average require people to drive only one additional block. So this would be more than offset by just smoother traffic flow altogether. So I live about 15 minutes from downtown. I could see some immediate benefit. Jennifer, who's out in the suburbs, probably couldn't give a hoop. You know, it's fine. Well, (laughs) that's the thing is I was thinking about how, yeah, if you've got a grid street system, it works great. Mm -hmm. But like out where I am, you know, if you miss your intersection or whatever, you can go a full half mile down the road before you even have another opportunity. So if I were going to take three rights in a row, I'd be going half a mile too far. Then I'd be driving Mm -hmm. into some residential neighborhood where the streets aren't even straight and kind of winding my way back and then turning right to get back to the intersection. (laughs) And I also fully think that the types of really dangerous left turns are on those same roads because that road that I'm talking about is basically a highway. And you have people trying to left turn across traffic that's going 60, 70 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. So the most dangerous places are also probably the least able to accommodate it right now. But if you have a grid system, absolutely. Make it all one way. Make everybody walk. That's what I (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, don't just get rid of left turns. Get rid of traffic. Yeah, man. Like like driving downtown, I try so hard to avoid it. And there's there's nowhere to park. Like you can drive to your location, be like, oh, there it was. Okay, now we're going to go find a parking garage somewhere a mile away. (laughs) I feel you and I agree. But yeah, that's the conclusion that the author came to in the busiest intersections Mm -hmm. that are mostly downtown where streets are laid out in a grid system. Let's just get rid of those left turns. We don't need them. Absolutely. Do it. Not going to affect me. So (laughs) I'm hiding from society out in the sticks. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled Venus. NASA announces two new missions. Oh, are we going there? Or is it like uh, it's unmanned, I'm sure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it would have to be unmanned. Yeah, I I thought about that. Venus, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think you would actually burn alive. Like, I believe it's hotter than Mars. Right, right, right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So NASA has announced that it's sending two new missions to Venus in order to examine the planet's atmosphere and geological features. The missions, which have each been awarded $500 million in funding, are due to launch between 2028 and 2030. Oh, yeah, pretty far away. But, you know, we can (laughs) put in our calendars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said the missions would offer the chance to investigate a planet we haven't been to in more than 30 years. The last U.S. probe to visit the planet was the Magellan Orbiter in 1990. However, other spacecraft from Europe and Japan have orbited the planet since then. The missions were picked following a peer review process and were chosen based on their potential scientific value and the feasibility of their development plans. 
The Da Vinci Plus, or a Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging mission, <laughs> will <laughs> measure the planet's atmosphere <laughs> to gain insight into how it formed and evolved. And yeah, that that name is, uh, you know, it's accurate, I guess, but... <laughs> yeah, I guess. I always feel so angry when yeah. I hear like a, a backronym like that, where they're like, what cool thing can we make this stand for? Yeah, I mean, right. even though all the words are correct, it yeah. still feels like a reach. <laughs> like, yeah. It, anyways, it will also aim to determine whether Venus ever has had an ocean. Da Vinci Plus is expected to return the first high-resolution images of the planet's tesserae geological features. Scientists believe these features could be comparable to continents on Earth and could suggest that Venus has plate tectonics. The Mm. second mission, Veritas, uh, yes, it's coming, Venus Emissivity, (laughs) (laughs) Radio Science, INSAR, Topography, and Spectroscopy, will map the planet's surface to understand its geological history, and investigate how it develops so differently than Earth. It will use a form of radar to chart surface elevations and discover whether volcanoes and earthquakes are still happening. Tom Wagner from NASA's Planetary Science Division says, It is astounding how little we know about Venus, but the combined results of these missions will tell us about the planet from the clouds in the sky, through the volcanoes on its surface, all the way down to its very core. It'll be as if we have rediscovered the planet. And over the last few decades, Mars has dominated NASA's budget for planetary missions. And in the meantime, researchers studying Venus have become philosophical about the lack of priority given (laughs) to their planet. (laughs) But that has been changing. New ideas, new interpretations, and new people have been transforming our understanding of Earth's nearest neighbor. And scientists who have devoted their careers to studying this hothouse world are jubilant that the planet is finally back on NASA's radar. Aw, like that's adorable. Can you imagine somebody who's dedicated their entire career to Venus and they spend their whole time in the lab watching Mars get all this money? Yeah. And then someone's like, all right, we'll send one probe. And they're like, oh, for me? <laughs> <laughs> they're so happy. I lo- yeah. They're jubilant. That's awesome. And I'm it's been literally 30 years. So yeah, that's, we that's should go back. Time. About yeah. time. <laughs> I mean, not us, the, the man. Right, unmanned. right. Jeff, Jeff Bezos <laughs> can go. I don't yeah. mind that. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right, so this next one is from Atlas Obscura, and it's about a pizza chef in Guatemala whose secret ingredient is lava. Oh. What? <laughs> so his name is Mario David Garcia. He lives in the town of San Vicente Pacaya, Population roughly 16,000. It's one of 21 small villages surrounding the slopes of the Pacaya Volcano, which is one of the most active volcanoes in Guatemala. But it's what's known as a friendly volcano, meaning it doesn't explode very often. It's just sort of been oozing constantly since 1961, Mm. which, as I've just said that out loud, I've realized that's also the same year that 101 Dalmatians came out. Oh, hey! um, (laughs) (laughs) But... Like other slow-moving volcanoes in Hawaii and Iceland, it's a popular tourist destination, with around 300 people visiting the edges of the lava every day, according to Guatemalan authorities. And at one point, Garcia saw some tour guides handing out marshmallows for their group to roast over the lava, and he got the idea for serving full meals cooked in the lava's heat. His first thought was to braise steaks or roast chickens, but he quickly realized that with these plain meats, he would need to haul up too many side dishes in his backpack to make it sort of a proper meal. Mm. 
Then he noticed these big, rounded, cave-like structures that form when a bubble rises up through the thick lava but doesn't manage to burst before it starts to cool and harden a little bit. And he looked at them and realized they look just like pizza ovens. Mm. So in 2019, he officially started his business, Pizza Pacaya, which has no fixed location on the mountain. Whoa. Instead, tourists make reservations to meet him at the bottom, and then they hike up together along with Garcia's 60-pound backpack of ingredients to find just the right spot to cook on, depending <sighs> on how the lava is flowing that day, which is kind of wild to think about. Like, oh, I was standing yeah. there yesterday. Now it's a death trap. Like, you got <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a very weird type of person who's like, yeah, I go up and visit lava every day. <laughs> And I make pizza. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the hardened bubbles are a little safer and more reliable temperature-wise, but of course the tourists prefer to see it done over a bright red fissure, so he often gives them what they want. He wears protective gear, including thick military boots, but he says the temperatures are still so hot that he often has to put his feet in salted water when he gets back home. And even in the little cave bubble things, the temperature gets easily over 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, so it cooks like in just a minute or two. And it looks really cool. I mean, intellectually, I know it's theatrical. Heat is heat. It doesn't taste any different. But they have a picture of the pizza in the article. And I got to say, it looks amazing. Like, if nice. if I were going to Guatemala, I'd be tempted to make a reservation. It seems I mean, cool. it's an experience meal, not just the meal itself, right? Mm -hmm. And it's way better than, like, protein bars you take on your hike. You get up there oh, and get yeah. an awesome pizza. That'd be <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that's a super cool novelty experience to have. And what a life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine his feet have a lot of calluses. But you know what? Somebody's got to do it. I don't think anybody has to do it, but <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next link. Well, Sci-Fi Wire is ready to blow your mind and upend most of what you understand about dinosaurs. Are you ready? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of frustrating when it feels like every couple of years they're like, everything we told you before was wrong. Aww. Now we think it's this. And, and then another a five lamer. years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> I'm not sorry cool to hear to about your radical paradigm <laughs> shift fatigue, but I am going to press <laughs> on regardless. Um, according to a new theory, the hugest dinosaurs may have been clumsy on land because they probably evolved in water. Oh, mm. so all right. There is a new theory that's come out that no T-Rex, for example, could have stayed on its feet long enough to terrorize people. <sighs> they think they would have been barely able to stand. So but... lame, so lame. <laughs> But imagine it like nesting like a little chicken. Like it's a T-Rex, but it's tired. It's all like, oh, okay, guys, I no, can't right no, now. No, not even chickens because chickens are super land bound. So biologist Brian J. Ford has published his studies in a book that's called Too Big to Walk, you know, just front loaded <laughs> right, right. with the theory here. And the way that he sees it, there is no way that big, big dinosaurs like a brachiosaurus could have held itself up on its four legs as if it ruled the place. Hmm. The largest land animal we know is about 10 tons. A whale can be about 10 times that size, but only because it evolved in water. And so he's reasoning that the land may have been largely submerged under shallow lakes and seas. And it was because of this environment that there was an imperative driving the move towards gigantism. And it could not have happened for any other reason. So they're like alligators and hippos. They can get on land, but for the most part, they're just sort of paddling along in the shallow water. That's exactly right. And those are the two current animals that we are familiar with that are cited in this theory. So huh. in 1993, there was a Diplodocus skeleton nicknamed 
Dippy in the Natural History <laughs> Museum of London, and it was updated to lift its tail off the ground. And the decision that sparked similar changes in other museums was both right and wrong. <laughs> so they were right about dinosaurs not leaving behind any tail drag, but the reason could be instantly explained if dinosaurs were semi-aquatic creatures whose tails floated. Ford is saying half the dinosaurs' intake of food would have been burned up by holding up the tail if it was a land animal. But if they were buoyed by water, it would have meant that literal tons of weight were taken off the legs, legs that are just frankly inadequate to support so much bulk. He even says T-Rex looks just like a present-day crocodile, but its strong hind legs were clearly used to propel itself along grazing for prey through shallow water. There is hmm. no other means of counting for those tiny forelimbs. Hmm. And then there's the issue of how dinosaurs could have ever been able to mate and breed on land if they spent their lives standing, which would have been as much of a struggle as it is for a female sea turtle to push herself far enough from the shore so she can lay her eggs. If dinosaurs were mating in water, it would have made far more sense if a creature that weighed 100 tons needed to support another 100 on its back. Right. <laughs> so for It's a big it, argument on who's going to be on the bottom. Exactly. <laughs> no, nobody wants to be on bottom here. Uh, Ford does believe that dinosaurs could have dragged themselves out of the water temporarily to lay eggs and that the hatchlings would have been able to frolic near the shore. The larger they grew, the theory posits, the more they would sink into the mud at the water's edge and therefore have to retreat deeper into the water. And that's mm. also why he thinks dinosaur footprints that we have unearthed tend to be really unusually shallow. Only the buoyancy of an aquatic environment could possibly explain why all their fossilized footprints are a few inches deep and never more. Their feet would have mm. probably gotten stuck a lot, right? <laughs> right, like he would have sunk up to his ankles and been unable to get oh, out. Yeah. Oh yeah, and we're not even done here. There's even more evidence of oversized dinosaurs being semi-aquatic in the fossil record. So when we look at coprolites, which is the fossilized feces of dinosaurs, especially ones that are unearthed by miners accumulated in layers where what is now land was once mostly submerged in warm seas. There were just too mm. many of these coprolite beds to have been produced by marine dinosaurs and other marine creatures. Unfortunately, Ford's theory has taken years to break the surface, probably because he's a cell biologist. And so he was vilified by paleontologists who said hmm. he was imposing on a science outside his realm, a.k.a. Uh -oh. stay in your lane, Ford. Yeah. <laughs> but as with many scientific theories that are doubted at first, the idea that dinosaurs could have only evolved in water living in a semi-aquatic lifestyle like hippos or crocodiles, 10 points to Gryffindor, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, honey, I am not Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless, uh, this theory is finally starting to catch on. And there could be a day when we realize this is something we knew all along, which is usually how paleontology works. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include A Day in the Life of a Flavor Inventor, Why Cuba Couldn't Control the Internet, and The Psychology of Panic. So all that and more can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and like the conspicuous lack of ads we provide to you, you can support us in that endeavor at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.